scripture, I want us to think for a minute or two tonight about the question, who or what is a Christian? The term Christian is loosely used in the world in which we live, and there are a lot of folks that, quite frankly, do not understand what it means to be a Christian. A lot of folks talk about being a Christian, and a lot of folks have the idea that there are certain things that you do to become a Christian when, in fact, the Bible doesn't say that. And then I think about the vast numbers of folks that migrated to a church building today. They make what I would call an annual pilgrimage to a church building for worship. And why is that? Because today is a holiday that has been designed by man. And all of us, we believe in the resurrection of Christ. We teach and preach the resurrection of Christ. And we're grateful for those who acknowledge the resurrected Christ. But we think of the resurrection every first day of the week. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul said, As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth the Lord's death till he come. And so obviously that would entail the resurrected Christ. So what does it mean to be a Christian? Who or what is a Christian? I want to begin by saying, first of all, that a Christian would be the saved. Well, what does it mean to be saved? Listen again to what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6, verse 17. But God be thanked that though you were the slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form or pattern of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Paul here uses the word form or pattern. What he's saying is that there is a pattern, a form of doctrine that has been delivered that shows us what to do to become a Christian. There are certain earmarks in Scripture identifying who or what a Christian is. Now, if you want to turn to the book of Acts, you can go through the cases of conversion. It may be the case that not every single step in God's plan of redemption is outlined in those particular cases. But when you begin to look at those cases of conversion as a whole, there are certain things that stand out. First, everyone who obeyed the gospel in the first century, they came to the conviction that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be, the Son of God. Do you remember in Acts chapter 2 when Peter preached, or we have a record of Peter's first gospel sermon? And he said, You men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by many wonders, signs, and miracles which God did by him in your midst as you yourselves also know. Were they familiar with Jesus of Nazareth? The answer is yes. Were they aware of the great miracles and wonders and signs that he had performed? Again, the answer would be yes. No doubt some of those people present on Pentecost Day had heard Jesus firsthand. In other words, they had heard Him speak the words of life eternal. And then secondly, it's quite possible that many of those people present, some of whom had seen Him perform some, some sign or some miracle. You think about all of the miracles that have been cataloged in Scripture. In the book of John, there are seven 
signs or miracles recorded by the apostle. And John wrote and said, Many of the signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but he said, These are written, why? That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing you might have life through his name. So the signs, the miracles that Jesus performed authenticated his claims of deity, that he was who he said he was, that is, the Son of God. So when we look at the cases of conversion, all of those who obeyed the gospel, they believed Jesus was God's only Son. In order for us to be a New Testament Christian, we have to believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Son of God. You remember the Apostle Peter? When Jesus had asked the question, Who do you say that I am? He said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. So we have to come to that conclusion. Then there is a second thing that those in the first century did to become among the saved or to be saved. And that is they repented of their sins. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, you remember Peter having been asked by the multitude present. They had been pricked or cut to the heart. And they cried out and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Here's what Peter said, repent. The word repentance means a change of heart. A change of heart followed by a change of actions. It really designates a 180 degree turn. And so, in the first century, we read of those who came to believe Jesus to be the Son of God. They repented of all of their sins. And then... They confessed with their mouth what they believed in their heart. That is, that Jesus was the Son of God. You remember in Acts chapter 8, verse 37, the eunuch said to Philip, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus talked about the importance of confessing Him before others in Matthew 10, verse 32. So what did they do? They believed Jesus to be the Son of God. They repented of their sins. They confessed His name. And then they were baptized or immersed, or we, we might say buried in a watery grave of baptism. Well, why were they baptized? Well, to be saved. Well, how do I know that? Because Jesus said in Mark 16, 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. When Peter was asked on Pentecost Day and the other apostles asked what to do, do you remember what they said? Do you remember what the apostles said? The record bears out what Peter said. Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Well, why? Well, Peter said, For the remission, that is, for the forgiveness of your sins. So Jesus links baptism to salvation, Mark 16, 16. Peter links it to the remission of sins. Paul, in recounting his conversion links it to the washing away of sins, Acts twenty two sixteen. So when they did what the Lord had commanded, what did they become? New Testament Christians. They became members of the body of Christ. How do I know they became members of the body of Christ? Well, in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, the Bible says that the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Well, who were the saved? They were those that had obeyed the gospel. The saved are the redeemed, the cleansed, those that have identified with the Lord by being baptized into Him. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, By one Spirit were you all baptized into one body. 
Now, somebody might ask the question, well, what's the body? Well, Paul said in Colossians 1.18, he's the head of the body of the church, which is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. So think about it. When we talk about the saved, the saved are those who believe Jesus to be the Son of God. They repent of their sins. They confess His name. They are immersed in water, and God then adds them to the church. Do they have to be voted into the church? No. God's the one that does the adding. Well, what church do they belong to? The church that Jesus purchased with His blood, Acts 20, verse 28. The church that Jesus ultimately gave himself for. In Ephesians 5.25, Paul said, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church, and gave himself for it. So when we obey the gospel, we become a part of the church, that is, the community of the saved. Now, let me just say this. When we ask the question, who or what is a Christian? First, a Christian is the saved. Secondly, a Christian is the sanctified. Do you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, Paul wrote to the church of God at Corinth. He said, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now the word church means the called out ones. It's the ecclesia. And it means the called out, those that have been called out of darkness into the light of Christ. A great passage of scripture, I think, that really underscores this idea. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Peter said, you're an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He said, a people for God's own possession. Now listen to what he said. Whom he has called forth out of darkness into his marvelous light. So those who belong to the Lord, they are the sanctified. They are the called out ones. We've been called out of darkness into the light of Christ. You remember in Colossians 1, in verse 12, Paul said, giving thanks unto the Father who has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He said, he's delivered us out of the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of God's dear Son. So those that have obeyed the gospel, they're the saved, they are the sanctified. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, Paul said, not only have we been sanctified, but he identified them as saints. What does it mean to be a saint? It means to be a child of God. Well, who is a saint? Every person that's obeyed the gospel. If you have done what the Lord instructed in Acts chapter 2, and you obeyed the gospel, and you're a part of the body of Christ, you're a saint. Are we to live like saints? Yes, we are. Why? Because God is to regulate our behavior. Well, how does He regulate our behavior? By the Scriptures. In other words, God has the ability to control His body through His teaching, doesn't He? That's why Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In all wisdom, take God's Word and follow it. If you'll follow God's Word, ultimately, you'll go to heaven, won't you? How do I know that? That's what the Bible says. Jesus said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter, the, enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. So, who or what is a Christian? A Christian is a saved. A Christian is a sanctified. A Christian would be designated as a saint. Furthermore, we're called servants, aren't we? Look again at what Paul said in Romans chapter 6. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Drop down and look at verse 21. 
Paul asked the question, What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. Did you know that as a Christian we have been saved to serve? That God is interested in us using the talents or abilities that we have to further His cause? Jesus talked a lot about being a servant. As a matter of fact, when Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, he instructed them to have to develop the mind of Christ. And in pointing out some of the attributes of Jesus, he identified him as a servant. And Jesus asked the question, is the servant above his Lord? If Jesus came to serve and we're to follow in his steps, don't you think he intends for us to be servants? In Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 10, Paul said that we have been created in Christ Jesus unto good works. All he's saying is that we as children of God are God's masterpiece. And God wants to use us in a great way. Well, why? Because it ultimately brings honor and glory to Him. You see, God is glorified in the church, isn't He? In Ephesians 3, verse 21, Paul said unto Him, Be glory in the church. So that means when I'm out trying to minister to the lives of other people, it might be the case that we take food to those who are in need. It might be the case that we provide housing for those that have been displaced. It might be the case that we go and visit those who are sick and hurting. Well, in doing that, we are doing exactly what the Lord intends for us to do. You see, Jesus said, Inasmuch as you did it unto one of these least of my brethren, you did it unto me. So we're just serving. We're trying to be servants of the Most High God. And then I would add to that, as servants, we are to be steadfast. You see, a Christian is to be steadfast in his or her service to God. I want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, very quickly. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul, of course, is dealing with the resurrection of Christ. He validates the resurrected Christ. He talks about the eyewitnesses to Christ. He identifies those that had seen visibly the risen Lord. And then he deals with the importance of the resurrection. The bottom line, if the resurrection hasn't occurred, then he said, our preaching is vain, our faith is vain, we're still in sin. But, as he points out, Christ has been raised. And so in verses 50 and following, he talks about that final day in which the graves will be opened. And all will come forth. And he says, in light of the resurrection, verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Well, why? Knowing that your labor is not vain in the Lord. You know what the Lord wants from you, what He wants from me? is faithfulness. Steadfastly serving in His kingdom. Now, does that mean I'm going to be infallible? Does it mean I'm never going to make mistakes in life? No. But it means that I'm going to be striving to the best of my ability to be working and worshiping in the kingdom of God, doing everything that I can to further His cause. Look also at Hebrews chapter, Hebrews chapter 6 for a moment. In Hebrews the 6th chapter, listen if you would, to what the writer has to say 
about our labor for Christ and our steadfastness in the kingdom. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9. The writer said, But beloved, we're confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints, listen to him, and do minister. What were they doing in the first century? They were steadfastly serving in the kingdom of God. Let me tell you what, I appreciate each and every one of you. Because in many respects, you are the core of this congregation. And there are a lot of things that you're doing day in and day out. Many of those things no one ever notices, but you're doing them. And I want you to know how much I appreciate everything you do. I know that the elders appreciate every activity that you do for the cause in this community. Every prayer that you utter, every meal that you take to someone, every visit that you make, every card that you send, every telephone call that you make, Everything that you do for the cause in this community, you do it because you love the Lord. And you do it because you want to serve. And you do it because you are steadfast in His service, aren't you? There's no way I could express to you how much I appreciate all the hard work that you do day in and day out. And there are some of you that go unnoticed in everything that you do. I want you to know I appreciate you. And I appreciate the fact that you're striving to the best of your ability to live a model Christian life. That you're striving as parents to bring your children to the services, to have them involved in the work of our youth group. I appreciate all the things that you do day in and day out. It's, it's greatly appreciated. And we do that because we have a common cause we're working for. We do it because we're trying to do what the Lord wants us to do. And so, I just say thank you. There's another aspect of what it means to be saved. We ask the question, who or what is a Christian? A Christian is identified as a saved person. A Christian is a sanctified person. A Christian is a saintly person, a Christian is a servant, a Christian is steadfast, and a Christian is secure. You see, if you are striving to be a servant in the kingdom, and you're steadfastly going about your business day in and day out, and you're trying to do what you can to advance the cause, then you need to understand that there is a sense of security that you enjoy in this life. Let me give you a passage of Scripture that I think ought to be helpful. Look at 1 John chapter 5 for a minute. I want to call attention to 1 John chapter 5 and verse 11. One of the things that a lot of folks struggle with in the church, particularly those of us, those of us who are trying to do our best, one of the most difficult things at least from my perspective, is to come to an appreciation and understanding of the security that we have in Christ. And I would simply say that if we're striving to the best of our ability 
To walk in the light, as John talks about in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. He said, you remember, if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The blood of His Son, Jesus, cleanses us from all sin. So, here's somebody who's trying to live a Christian life. They're striving to walk in the light. In other words, in harmony with the will of God. Well, if they're doing that, if you're doing that, if I'm doing that, does that mean that I'm living in a safe state? Does that mean that I can say confidently that I know that I'm going to heaven? Don't you think it would be miserable to go through life claiming to be a Christian but living in an air of uncertainty with this think so, maybe so, hope so? Is that what God wants? Does God want us to question whether or not we're saved? To always be concerned whether or not we're in Christ, out of Christ, saved today, lost tomorrow? Look at 1 John chapter 5 in verse 11. Listen to what John said. This is a testimony that God has given us eternal life. And he said this life is where? It's in his Son. He who has the Son has what? Has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now look at verse 13. In verse 13, here's what John said. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So he's writing to people that have obeyed the gospel, hasn't he? He's writing to those who are in Christ. As a matter of fact, he talks about that fellowship that they enjoy with God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son in chapter 1, verse 3. All right? So he says, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Well, why? Why would I write these things? Here it is. That you may know that you have eternal life. Did you hear that? Did you read it? I'm writing these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Here's what John's saying. He's saying, I'm writing so that you as a child of God can have confidence and assurance in your salvation so that you can know with all certainty that you are His, that you belong to Him, that you're in a safe condition, and John's saying that as long as you continue that lifestyle, continue that course, you have eternal life. You don't have to worry about it. Now, does that mean that you're going to be flawless in every decision, everything you say and do in life? No. Well, what then is the remedy for that? Well, go back and look at chapter 1. Chapter 1. Look at verse 9. In verse 9, John said, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John is not writing to alien sinners. In other words, to those who have never obeyed the gospel. He's writing to people who are in a covenant relationship with God. In other words, those who are among the saved, the redeemed, the reconciled, those who have obeyed the gospel. And so he's saying, look, when you stumble and fall, you confess your faults, Ask God to forgive you, and what does He do? He cleanses you. Now look at chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you, that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. All right, here's what he's saying. All of us as Christians, the ideal, what we're striving for, is to rise above sin, to live above sin. He said that you sin not. But he said, if anyone sins, you need to understand you have an advocate with the Father. And the picture is that of Jesus Christ. Here is God the Father, and here is Christ. 
And Jesus is pleading our case before the bar of heaven. We are exonerated on the basis of what? The blood of Jesus. Remember what he said back in chapter 1, verse 7, If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, does what? Cleanses us from all sin. So, can I have security as a child of God? The answer is yes. God wants us to feel secure, to be secure. Wouldn't it be terrible to go through life trying to do your best day in, day out, walk in the light, and your goal is heaven, and you've tried to the best of your ability to be productive in the kingdom of God, you've tried to rear your children right, you've tried to be a good husband, a good wife, you've tried to be what the Lord would have you to be, and then you get to the end of the road and you say, boy, I hope I'm saved. Or if you say, you know what, I think I'm saved. You think that's what the Lord wants? You think He wants you lying in a hospital bed, hoping and praying that, you know, somehow, some way you're going to be saved? You think that's what the Lord wants? I don't think so. Look at 2 Timothy chapter, look at 2 Timothy chapter 4 very quickly. 2 Timothy chapter 4. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, this is the Apostle Paul's final inspired letter. And these are, as we would say, his last recorded words. It may be the case that you have been, some, you have been with someone very close to you, and you had the opportunity to hear their last words. Or maybe you heard some of the last things that they had to say before they stepped out into eternity. In a sense, what you have here, Paul's last words. And here's what he says in verse 6. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. He said, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. Finally, listen to him. There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Did you hear that? Paul said, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. Now I want to ask you tonight, is that confidence or is that confidence? Man, that's confidence. Paul said, look, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, and the Lord, the righteous judge, he's going to give me that crown on that day. Talk about an air of confidence and assurance. Now, don't you think Paul wants us to be equally assured? Listen to him. He said, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He's talking about you there. He's talking about all of us. And he's saying that as a child of God, here we are. We fought the good fight. We have finished the race. We've kept the faith. We have striven to the best of our ability to walk in the light. And he's saying, let me tell you what. When that great and final day comes, you need to understand the Lord's going to give you the crown of life. Which leads me to the Stephanos, the victor's crown. Remember what Jesus said in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10? Be faithful until death, and I will give unto you the crown of life. 
That's the victor's crown. That crown awaits every faithful child of God. Now I want to close very quickly. I want to look at, I want you to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Before we conclude, just so we can drive it home, this idea of being secure in Christ. In verses 16 through 18 in chapter 4, Paul is contrasting the eternal and that which is transitory or ephemeral in nature. He talks about how we're not looking at those things which are temporary, but rather those things which are eternal in nature. So you make the transition to chapter 5, verse 1, and here's what he says. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, that is, this body, if this body is dissolved, he said, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now, I would underline that word know there. And I would underline it in my mind and say, you know what? I can know that when I lay aside this temporal, physical, material body, that I have a home with God in heaven one day. Let me tell you what, God wants you to feel secure in your relationship to Him, doesn't He? Can you feel secure? Yes. Should you feel secure? Yes. Look, Paul was confident. And you think about Paul when he wrote to the church at Philippi in about A.D. 61, 62. Here he is about six years from losing his life. And here's Paul saying, you know what, for to me to live, he said, it's Christ. But he said, to die is gain. In verse 23, he said, to depart and be with Christ, he said, it's far better. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 20, he said, you know what, Christ is going to be magnified in my body, whether by life or or by death. Paul was so confident about the hope of heaven. So when we ask the question, who or what is a Christian? A Christian is easily identified in this book that we call the Scriptures. If you are a Christian, then I want to close by saying this to you. Be faithful. Live a faithful life. And you know what the promise is? A crown of life to Stephanos. There are a lot of things in this world that people could take from you, but there's something nobody can take from you, and that's your relationship to God, your eternal life. You, you strive to walk in the light, and you have that home in heaven. When I was just a young fellow, my, my dad used to tell me, he said, there's something that you can acquire in this life that nobody can take from you. He said, that something is education. He was right. There are a lot of things you can lose in this life, but you know what? You get a degree, you go to school, you work hard, you get a degree, nobody can take that from you. You become a child of God, you walk in the light, you live your Christian life day in, day out, nobody can take it from you. You have a home in heaven. So if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, could I encourage you to come to Christ could I encourage you to do simply what they did in the first century? Believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His name. Be buried with Him in baptism. If you'll do that, you'll be numbered among the saved, the sanctified. You'll be identified as a saint. What would the Lord have you to do? Be one of His servants. The Lord would have you to be a servant of His. 
to strive to the best of your ability to be steadfast in His service, and then to live secure, knowing that the Stephanos, Stephanos awaits you. If you're here tonight, maybe you're not faithful and you need the prayers of the church, we'd be happy to pray with you and for you, and God will abundantly pardon, 1 John 1, 9. Won't you come as we stand and sing?